We ask you please to turn to uh, John's epistle, 1 John in chapter 4. I want to begin reading with verse 12. I know it says verse 13 and that's what's printed, but I want to jump a verse ahead into verse uh, 12 and uh, read from verse 12 through the end of the chapter. So 1 John, please, in chapter 4 and verse Verse 12. As you find that, let's pray together. Again, Father in heaven, be with us. Um, As we read through this passage, I pray that we would import nothing into this passage, but draw everything out of it. It would be for your glory and for the benefit of your people. May in some sense it's Dread and its delight both be known to us. That we may have confidence on the day of judgment and not fear. Please, Holy Spirit, do that work in us that only you can do. May this word live in us. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First John chapter 4, verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. No one has ever seen God. We love one another. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I'm acutely aware that I won't be able to finish all of this. So there's really two points to today's sermon. I'll do one next Sunday, the next. But remember, we began last week in this text, and the question before us was, are you sure, that is, Are you certain, do you have assurance that you have eternal life? Do you have assurance that God abides in you and you abide in him? Do you have assurance that you've passed really from death to life? Are you sure that you're saved? That's how the question was put throughout the centuries. Do you know, brother, do you know, sister, that you're saved? Now, John, this by way of review, has been working through this in this entire epistle. 
And he's given us, as we've said, three tests. Um, and uh, some commentators have delineated these tests with these titles. Not the perfect titles, but they're helpful. One is a, a doctrinal test that is, do we believe what is true about Jesus, who he is, what he did? Do we believe that, the truth? And then, how is a sense that worked in our lives? That is to say, are we desirous of being obedient to him? Do we find ourselves moved to obedience to Christ? Some would call that the moral test. And then, do we love each other? The social test. Do we love each other? Relationally, do we love each other? Those things, John says, should spring from this truth. So, do we believe what is true about Jesus? Do we obey him? And do we love each other? Uh, last week, we concentrated a great deal on this doctrinal test. Do we believe what is true about Jesus? And, and so John tells us that we can have assurance because we have the Holy Spirit. And it, the Holy Spirit, we know, um, comes to us and brings the truth to us, glorifies, brings the truth to us about Jesus. So John earlier wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not, does not confess Jesus is not from God. And so the work of the Spirit is to enable us to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, or as the apostles testified, that he's the Savior of the world. We found that in, our, in the early verses of the passage I read this morning. And then we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. We've come to know it, to believe it. So this truth about Christ, you see, is worked in us by his word and his spirit, the testimony of the apostles, the work of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, if you know and believe, if you know and rely upon the love that God has for us, then you know that the Spirit of God has worked in you because the Apostle says, Paul says, that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, only through the work of the Spirit. So if you know and believe, if you've confessed in Jesus, you know that the Spirit of God has worked in you in such a way to give you new life so that you can reorient all of your life on the basis of Christ. And John puts it that we, we know and rely upon the love of God because we learned in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, that in this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So Jesus died for our sins. When he died for our sins, he paid the debt of it in full so that trusting in him, then we can be assured that we have eternal life. And since we trust in him, we can be assured that we have the Holy Spirit. And since we have the Holy Spirit, we can rest assured that we abide in him and he in us. So that doctrinal test. This week, John puts a couple of them together, this doctrinal test, but also the social test. I'm not going to get all the way to love this week, love for each other. But as you know, as John's been writing, he puts very often our belief in Jesus, by knowing what is true about Jesus and believing in him, with also our loving each other. So that's where this is, 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 is building. 
But I want this week to begin with this expression so that we understand it, that we see in verse 12, and also we see in verses 17 and somewhat in verse 18. In verse 12, it's put, his love is perfected in us. His love is perfected in us. Uh, We saw that, you might remember, in verse 5 of chapter 2, where John writes, whatever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. And so in that expression, you get the sense the love of God is perfected in us when we obey. And here it is. If we love, uh, verse 12, uh, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So his love is perfected in us when we love each other and God abides in us. Uh, That's love being perfected in us. And verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So love is perfected with us when we have confidence that uh, for the day of judgment. Verse 18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love, that is love perfected in us, casts out fear, for fear is to do with punishment. And so we see that God's love is perfected in us when we're not afraid of judgment. Um, Because whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What's that little word mean, perfected? Now, very often we think of this, of being made perfect in some way or being perfected as taking some that was flawed to then something that's flawless, something that was imperfect, something perfect. And there's a sense in which that's true, but, but in, in the scripture, when especially the New Testament in Greek, when we, we consider this word for perfect or perfected, it, it doesn't have particularly the sense of flawless, I'm sorry, flawed to flawless, imperfect to perfection in that sense, but, but brings it to completion. That something has, its, has a goal. And when that is perfected, then that goal has been brought to fruition, to consummation, to completion. It's been a, accomplished. We, we see that in other passages. If you'll indulge me, just a very quick word study uh, just to look at this word and how it, it's used in a couple of other places. In John chapter 4, verse 34, the verses, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That could be translated, make perfect his work. But that doesn't mean that God's, the Father's work was ever imperfect. It simply means that Jesus said, I've come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill the will of God. His will is never imperfect, but, but I've come to fulfill it, to, to, as we have it translated here, accomplished. Then in John 19, you might remember the context of this. Jesus on the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst, could be translated, to make perfect the scripture, to fulfill it, to make perfect the scripture. It wasn't saying that the scripture is ever flawed or imperfect in that sense, but, but saying, I, 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 I've, I've come to this point so that the scripture, the goal of what the scripture was pointing to, the destination is now being fulfilled. Paul uses it of himself in Acts chapter 20. We read it, uh, verse 24, uh, where Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only that I may finish my course and ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus 
to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's saying, I've come to, to finish or, or make perfect my course. Not that it wasn't, didn't have flaws in it, his, that his course was perfect. But now he says, I've come to the end of it. I've finished it. I've, I've done that which God has called me to do. And then perhaps the most famous of all, James chapter 2, verse 22. James writes, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a passage where John makes the statement, faith without works is dead. It's not real faith, not real faith that saves. And he uses Abraham as an example. And he says of, of, of Abraham that uh, Abraham's faith was made perfect or completed by his works. It doesn't mean that his faith was utterly perfect. But it meant that his faith had a goal and his faith had a goal which was his faithfulness to God, his obedience to God. And so when Abraham obeyed God, oh yes, we see the outworking, we see the goal of his faith. So the point here is that when we speak of God's love being perfected in us, we're saying that the love of God, that is his purpose for sending his son is the propitiation of our sins. That we might be saved. The purpose of it, of it is fulfilled, we can say, at least in part, when we're obeying him. That's 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. We're being obedient. We see, oh, this is why he's loved us. He's loved us to save us, forgive us our sins, fill us with his spirit, that we may obey him. And then, Chapter 4, verse 12, that we may abide in him. His love is fulfilled when we're living in him and he in us. We're living in his love, abiding in his love. And when we're loving each other, and so purpose, why did God love you and send his son to be the propitiation for your sins? We can certainly answer, he did it to save us, that is, to, so our sins would be forgiven, so we'd be uh, justified in his sight and belong to him. But yes, but, but it finds its perfection as we obey, and, and it finds its completion as we Love each other. Does that make sense to you? Do you see that? And now notice what he's saying here. Verse 17. He says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. He says, listen, God has loved you by sending his son to be the propitiation for your sins so that, make your list, on that list is that you'll have confidence in the day of judgment and won't be afraid. You see, there is something to fear on the day of judgment. How did Jesus how did Jesus put it in Matthew in, in chapter 10 and verse 28? He says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. See, this day of which John writes, this day of judgment is set and it's certain. Jesus spoke of that day, listen, from Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, 
Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then when Jesus sent out his apostles with the message of the kingdom of God, he says to them, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, this is Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Apostle Paul writes of the certainty of this day when he's preaching in Athens. This is in Acts chapter 17. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commanded all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. Paul's reminds these people who are worshiping an unknown God that there really is a God and he has set a time for judgment. To the church in Thessalonica, Paul writes, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. Even to Timothy writes, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I've believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard it until that day. You see, that day, it's coming. It's been entrusted to me. And here's how Paul describes it as he writes Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 3. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see, there's a day of judgment. It's coming. It's set. It's certain. And John writes to us and says, the love of God has a purpose, has a goal, something which it will accomplish in those who believe that you can have confidence on this day and not be afraid. See, Jesus is the one who'll judge. Matthew chapter 13, verse 40, in a parable of Jesus, he says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be that the end, at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send his angels and they'll gather out of his kingdom all uh, causes of sin and law, all lawbreakers and threw them in, and throw them into the fiery fur, furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And in fact, Jesus puts it like this very directly. He says, for as the father raises the dead, John 5 verse 21, and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever doesn't honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming 
and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, those those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to live in himself, to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus the judge, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations and he'll separate people from one another as his shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And as I mentioned, there really is something to fear. Hell. Matthew 5, 22. Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand has caused you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I've read from Matthew 10. The Son of Man will send his angels. They'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25. And I'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Second Thessalonians again. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. And finally, Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It isn't, there isn't, it isn't that there isn't something to fear. What is the fear is this eternal, everlasting hell punishment. But John writes that we can have confidence on that day. We can have confidence on the day of judgment. I don't, I don't know if you've spent much time contemplating that day. On the one hand, it's difficult to even think of this judgment 
and damnation for too long. But there is for us believers in Jesus the right even the expectation to not be afraid to have confidence on that day. This is what God, God's love has for us. This is the completion of it. He says, I want you to have confidence in the, on that day. When you do not fear of it, when you contemplate it and don't fear that you have confidence before God on that day, you will know that my love, the love that sent Jesus to make propitiation for your sins, is accomplishing what I desire for it to accomplish. I want you to have this. This is the goal of it, a goal of it. This is, this is what I want you to have. And so notice how he puts it in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as, because as he is, so also are we in this world. He's basing, he's saying the love of God is perfected. We have confidence because as he is, as Jesus is, we are also in this world. The NIV just simply cuts to the chase and says, because we're like Jesus in this world. What does he mean by that? There's two things, at least, but two things I think we can glean. We'll only get to one this week. And it's this one. I asked the question, well, how is, was, is Jesus in this world? Thus, how then are we in this world? Well, you could say, I suppose, that he's righteous. And we know that we are righteous in this world too. As believers in Jesus, we know that his righteousness has clothed us and we're to live in it. And so we, we know, as what Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is declared righteous, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is righteous in this world, so are we. But I think there's something else that's even more, if that isn't, but sweeter to us. And it comes from John chapter 17, this high priestly prayer of Jesus. Verse 22, it begins. Think of this. Jesus is praying. You know the scene, I trust. It's before he's arrested to be crucified. He's praying. Praying for those disciples who are around him and also for us. And he prays, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. In them, I'm sorry, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. You see, in this world, the Lord Jesus was loved by his Father. 
And he had nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. He even knew that his father would not abandon him to death. Even though he knew he would die and why he would die and all of that. This is epiphany. One of the great epiphany texts is the baptism of Jesus. What did the father say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. As he is in the world, so are we. Do you hear the Lord say that? Do you hear him say it to you? That's the completion of his love. That we should so know it that we would never fear that day of judgment. We're as safe on the day of judgment as Jesus is. Hear him say it. How can I hear what we'll think of the cross? This is love, not that we love God, but that he gave his son as the propitiation for our sins. Can you hear it? That he loves you. Don't be afraid. Jesus took it. He took it all. If I could say nothing else to you ever, it would be that. If you could hear nothing else, it would be that. Yes, he's the propitiation for you. Yes, he does love you. If you're a believer in him. He does love you. One 18th century theologian talked about sort of the stages, if you will, of, of, of a Christian. He says, it begins like this. And again, these are stereotypical and these are just categories. So, so receive them like that. He says, it begins like this, that we have no fear of God and no sense of his love. That we just suppress the realities of judgment and hell. Romans 1, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And, and, and there's no fear of God, as the psalmist and then Paul quotes in Romans 3. There's no fear of God before our eyes. Children sometimes have no fear when they should. They just are ignorant, right? And so if we suppress this truth, then we can be ignorant of it and not really, not really fear, but not know the love of God either. But then conviction comes, and there's fear. But no sense of love, just fear, you see. Some of you glided through that step, and most I trust do, but, but, but there's this sense of fear, this dread I get it. I, I understand the consequences of my sin and the reality of judgment in hell. And so, so yes, there's, there's fear, real fear, fearing the one who can destroy eternally, forever, always being destroyed. One soul and body in hell. There's that fear. But, but what about the love? I can't grasp the love. And, and then you grasp the love of God in Christ. You see it. You see it on the cross. You see, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for his all. So will he not? Also along with him, graciously give us all things. We, we see it, you know. He's going to condemn me. Well, Jesus, he's the one who died for me. He's the one who defends me. He's the one who intercedes for me. 
And yet, probably for a moment in the, the way that transition is going, there's fear, but there's also, you get this sense of love, and then it breaks through, and there's love and no fear. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. How precious. That's love perfected. Love perfected, you see, moves us from fear to confidence, fear to assurance. And John says, that's for you as a believer in Jesus. That's for us. Don't be afraid. Have confidence. Why? Because as Jesus was loved, so are you. He's the firstborn of many brothers. He prayed that as the Father loved him, so he would love us too. There's a question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism. I didn't think of this until yesterday. I wish I'd thought about it. On Friday when I was finishing the order of worship, this would have been our profession of faith. But um, it's part of the question and answer uh, section in the Heidelberg Catechism that concerns uh, the Apostles' Creed and its meaning. And the question is, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? The answer, in all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and has so removed the whole curse from me. All his enemies and mine, he'll condemn to everlasting punishment, but me and all his chosen ones, he'll take along with him into the joy and glory of heaven. But me and all his chosen ones, he'll take along with him into the joy and glory of heaven. How do I know that I'm one of his chosen ones? Well, do I confess that Jesus is the Son of God? Do I know that God sent him in love as the propitiation for my sins? Yes. Receive, hear him say, receive his love. I, 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 it almost seems like I should have like three more paragraphs. But no, it's just, it's just that. And the deepest and richest and most profound understanding of love. Receive it. Let's pray. Father, I pray for each of us on this morning that you would perfect your love in us, that by your spirit that you would cause your love 
to be poured out in our hearts in such a way that we may know that as you have loved Jesus, you have loved us. That we too may be well-beloved sons and daughters, so abide in us. We may abide in, in love. Father, we pray that you would give us great assurance, especially in these days in which we live. Our lives know many difficulties. There are many things to fear in the world in which, in which we live. Some in the political realm, some in the health realm, some in the economic realm, relationally. So, Father, we pray that you would grant us this grace, this grace you've promised. We may look upon the day of judgment and not be afraid, but live in confidence. I pray, God, that you would use us as a company of people, as a congregation, as a church, to declare this message of confidence on the day of judgment to others. I pray that you would enable your word, the gospel, to spread rapidly, to be honored by those who hear it. We pray that you would enable us to share it. We pray that you would bring revival in our city and in our land. May the love of God be protected be perfected in us, even as we abide in you, in you and us. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.